Well, thanks, guys. Good, good morning. I'm Rob, if you haven't met me already. And um, up there, sure. Cool. Thanks, brother, for the opportunity. Uh, I met this guy back in March, was it? And uh, we talked on the phone prior to that. And um, first of all, he's got a great name. He's got a lovely wife. And I thought, oh, all, this guy's good. Actually visited here in March and met some of you guys. Uh, There's only like, I think, a dozen people during spring break, but it was great to come then. It's great to be um, here for a short term. And um, yeah, if you haven't met us, we're the Jenners. And um, just grateful for the opportunity to open up God's word with you this morning and to uh, look at a, a marvelous passage. You know, it's sometimes you hear people say things like, I guess it's meant to be, or... It must be my destiny. It must be fate. Or perhaps you hear, must have been written in the stars for this to happen. You ever heard that phrase before? Must have been written in the stars. See, it's the idea that a, a moment in time or a particular event or a situation was predetermined. It was written in the stars. Well, today in Genesis, we come to a passage where God gives a promise that is written in the stars, quite literally. And when we open up this text, we come to a man who we were introduced to last week. His name is Abram. And Abram is in a very low point of his life. This is where he is... Second guessing, as it were, he still has faith, but he, he is, he's wondering if God is actually going to come through on the promises that he's given. I mean, it must have been a, a very unnerving space to live in. You remember last week, he was already an old man when the Lord called him and made these wonderful promises, and here he is waiting, waiting and waiting. And it doesn't seem like anything's happening. And so again, it might feel... Uh, you're tempted to sort of start to doubt. You're tempted to come up with solutions. Well, I guess maybe God's got a plan B here. But because I, it doesn't seem like he's coming through on the promises that, that he's made. Maybe some of you are living in that space this morning. How do you know that God will come through on what he's promised you? How can you be sure? How can you trust him during this season of waiting? Because it's written in the stars, dear friend. We open up this text in Genesis, and we see that God comes to this man, Abram, and he reassures him of two things. He reassures him that he will, in fact, have descendants. He will have kids, even though he's an old man. And he will give him this land. He will give him these promised kids and promised land. Because God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. That's the same God that we serve today. You know, last week, you remember how Robert showed us the call of Abram and the promises that were given to him. This week in chapter 15, those same promises are validated are enshrined, as it were, through this thing called a covenant. Basically, the Lord reassures Abram about having descendants and land. 
And this is a fascinating passage because not just for Abram and the faith that he's supposed to have in God, the New Testament picks this up on one of the most key, important gospel truths that there is. How can a guilty sinner stand before God? So this is relevant for you because every one of you in this room, myself included, are guilty sinners. And we will stand before God Almighty. What are you going to do? I remember I was on an airplane not long ago with Robert and it was southwest, so I didn't realize they'd seat you wherever it's like flying on a bus. And they seat you wherever, you know, you can find a seat. And I sat next to this gal who went to Baylor University, and, and she wasn't a Christian. And I said, if you, you know, we're all going to stand before God, and what are you going to say? Like, if, if and let me ask you this, the same thing, dear friend. If, if you were to die today, or eventually you will die, do, do you understand that? You are going to die. Hopefully it's not through some crazy plague or some terrorist attack, but you will die one day. And you're going to stand before God. And if the Lord says, why should I let you into heaven? Because you are guilty. How would you answer that question? This gal said why, and this is a typical American answer, typical Texan answer, oh, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And God, if he's a loving God, he should know that I'm a good person. The Bible says that no one is good. No, not one. No one does good. All have turned away. All have sinned. So this, this text actually looks forward to our greatest need about having faith. Not just general faith. Not just a vague faith. Not just, oh, we've got to have faith. But actually faith to be justified by God through Jesus. So with this text before us, there's going to be two things that I want us to see. God keeps his promises, and he reassures this man about having descendants and about having land. Excited? Let's pray as we jump into it here. Lord, we thank you again for this privilege to open up your word. What we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And we are not, make us. For your glory's sake, in Christ's name, amen. So last week in chapter 12 we saw some massive promises made to Abram. Even though he was old, the Lord says that he'll make him into a great nation. That God himself will bless Abram by making his name great. Do you remember Babel and those fools that messed up and gave us all the languages? They wanted to make themselves their name great? Well, God says, I will make your name great, Abram. Not only that, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then catch this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. All the folks from every tongue, tribe, and ethnicity will be blessed from this one desert-wandering bloke, guy. Sorry, that's an Aussie term. One desert-wandering guy. I will bless you. I mean, imagine, those are some pretty gigantic promises. Would you agree? That, that's, would you be pretty excited? It's kind of hard to take it all in. I mean, that'll get you up in the morning, right? I will make your name great. I will bless you. In fact, everyone on the earth is going to be blessed through you. Through you and through your line. I mean, you're probably going to be pretty excited. You're not going to wake up the next morning and just, all right, well, what's for... 
what, what's for coffee? Okay, what am I doing? I mean, you're going to be like, whoo, let's, the God Almighty, the creator of the whole heavens and earth, came to me and made these promises. And, and so, you know, you're, you're telling your wife, Sarai, guess what? I've got this message. God came to me. Ooh, how exciting. And then a few days go by. All right, maybe, maybe the Lord's up to something that I'm not aware of. And then a couple weeks, not much happening here, followed by several months. And finally, the years roll by, which turn into decades. And nothing, as in zero, seems to be happening. In fact, the time that we get to this chapter, it's been nearly 25 years since God first made those promises. Keep, just let, let that sink in. Some of you weren't even alive 25 years ago. It's been 25 years, nearly, since God has first made these promises. It's easy to miss that. Look at Genesis 12. Sorry, Genesis 15. Notice here, there's just three simple words after these things, which refers back to the previous chapter for sure, but let's not forget that 25 years have passed. That's a long time to wait. That goes for us, it's like back to the late 90s. I was still in high school. 25 years of waiting. It's a long time to wait. And then one night, seemingly out of the blue, God comes, the word of the Lord, like, like a prophet. The word of the Lord comes to Abram while he's in his tent. And he has a message for this man. Let's look at it in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay, we got to step back here because clearly he's feeling a bit unnerved about something, right? Otherwise, God wouldn't have said, don't, don't, don't be afraid, fear not. But the question is, what is he fearing? What is he worried about? Well, in the previous chapter, we see Abram scoop up about 300 or so guys to go rescue Lot. And he rescued Lot from these four gangster-like kings. These, you know, like thug kings were basically like sweeping through and pillaging the land. They had kind of come together to, you know, basically do what they want. And, and so Abram goes because his nephew Lot gets sort of swept up in the backwash of all of this. And he goes in the middle of the night, and he's got his, you know, 300 men, not Leonidas, but he's got, you know, he's got his 300 guys, and he goes and he, he, he rescues Lot. Now, it, if that's true, you know, if, if he went and from some really dangerous, really bad guys from the east, the four kings from the east, it's only natural to think, well, give it a little bit of time, and I think these guys are probably going to become headhunting for me. Right? This would be, you know, your, I don't know, America's Middle East most wanted or whatever it might be. And they're not going to be happy that I came and took my nephew out and raided them, etc. 
But that's why the Lord tells him, fear not. And notice the the vocabulary that he uses. He says, I am your shield, which reiterates what Melchizedek actually said. I I, I am your shield. Listen, I'll protect you from retaliation. Nothing, Abram, nothing will come between you and harm. I will stand in the way. And then notice this next part. It actually triggers something in Abram's mind. He says, I will reward you. Can you see that? Your reward will be very great. Now, when he hears that, something triggers in his mind, and it's not about having more wealth, because he's already rich. Something triggers about the promises that were made. Don't don't miss what's about to happen, because up until this point in the story, God has done all the talking. It's been a monologue. He told Abram where to go, what to do, and Abram, what does he do? He silently obeys. But now for the first time, Abram speaks to God, and he does so with quite an exasperated tone. I want you to see in verse 2 the tone, hear the tone in his voice. Notice what he says. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So, all right, he starts off by acknowledging that he's talking to the sovereign master, Lord of all, but he doesn't shy away from the fact that God has yet to come through on what he said. Can, can you see that there? It's been 20, give or take, 25 years. Not one kid has been born. Sure, he's heard time and again, the Lord make these big, massive promises about having a multitude of descendants like the sand on the seashore, blah, blah, blah. Nevertheless, here he is, childless. Plus, he's not getting any younger, nor is his wife. You can sense his exasperation there, right? Particularly if you look at verse 3, he doesn't even allow the Lord to speak. He tries to answer his own question. Notice how it just kind of rattles on to verse 3. Notice, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me new offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Notice there, he's talking about this guy Eleazar. Now, who is this? Well, Eleazar is one of his servants. Um, remember, Abram wasn't out by himself. He had at least 300 soldiers with him. He had workers with him, and there's you know, a clan of them. And so he's saying, Lord, with how things currently stand, I'm going to have to come up with a solution here. I'll just adopt Eleazar so that at least a slave born in my house will be my heir. Perhaps, Lord, that's what you want. You need to understand that this idea wasn't totally foreign. In ancient times, if the head of a household had no son to pass on the the family legacy and family name, then it was possible for a slave to be legally adopted as the heir. And this adopted person would then be expected to look after and care for the one who adopted them as they age, eventually bury their master, and then the inheritance and titles and deeds, etc., would end up in the hands of this adopted slave. You with me? Abraham looks over his situation and thinks, look, even though this is less than ideal, maybe this will be the case with myself and Eleazar. Do you understand the struggle that Abraham is having here is a struggle that flows from unbelief, sorry, that flows from belief rather than unbelief. It's precisely because Abram believes that he is struggling with what's happening to him in his life. You don't understand that? It's precisely because he believes that he's struggling. His dilemma is that he still doesn't have a child. 
And God has promised that he's going to be the father, right, of this great nation. But before that can happen, before he can inherit the land to have people and have kids, well, it'd be helpful to have, I don't know, maybe just like one kid? Because he's still got zero. Abraham's struggle isn't because he doesn't believe God, it's because he does. Now, just pause here for a moment, friends. Abraham is the father of faith. He is talking to God, the creator of heaven and earth, and he has doubts. What chance do you think that you will have to stroll through this life without any doubt? Listen, experiencing doubt, friend, is is not a sign of being unsaved. It is a part of life in this fallen world. Many of the hymn writers understood this. Take the song, Just As I Am. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. My Christian friend, if you walk with the Lord long enough, there will be, let me tell you, there will be seasons where you are tossed about and filled with doubt. Get ready for it. Buckle your seatbelt. But God understands this. And just as he is gracious with Abram, so he is with us. Look at how he comes. Look at the way the text reads. It's beautiful. Behold, in verse 4. It's like, you know, it's, it, as the audience, we're kind of like, the light is now shining. The music's kicking on. Just as it's like kind of, it's this depressed sort of melancholy music that he's in verses two and three. Well, what's going to, what are you going to give me? What am I, you know, Eleazar. And then you hear, you know, here comes like the, in Star Wars, when like the rebel forces are coming, like, you know, like the music's turning up, right? And we, we can feel it in verse four. Behold, look at the way it reads. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He says, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son. You're not going to have a surrogate son, Abram. Your very own son. And then the scene here is beautiful. He says, come outside, my friend, and let's do some stargazing together. Look at verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, astronomers tell us that there are billions of galaxies with each one billions of stars. And if you ever have a chance to get out of the city, I know ATX is, is you know, it's up there. But if you ever have a chance to get out of the ATX and, and get out into the countryside, maybe you've experienced this before, maybe you've gone camping, right? And you get away from some of the smog and the pollution and some all the lights that are going to dilute the stars and you get out somewhere in the country and you just look up. Maybe you're camping out there. It's like, it's amazing, right? Look at all these stars. And God brings out Abram and says, I want you to look up. Count the stars. One, two, yeah, no, I give up. There's too many. He says, that's how many of your descendants are going to be. You know, in one sense, though, he's just repeating what he's already said. Remember the sand on the seashore, right? So he's already repeating that. Yet, on another level, he's offering a vivid object lesson for Abram. 
What's he, what is that? Abram, look up. Count the stars. You see those stars? I made every single one of those. Out of nothing. Out of nothing. I'm the God who flung those stars into space. I'm the God who made every single one of those. So if God could make those stars, then he certainly has the power to come through on what he's promised, even though things seem impossible. And how does Abram respond to this? Well, though his situation seemed utterly impossible from the human eye, he looks beyond it. Do you see? He looks beyond his present scenario and looks beyond it through the eyes of faith. He believes God to be true and reliable and trustworthy. He put his faith in the Lord. Or you could read that he was believing in the Lord. Look how everything comes to a crescendo here in verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, two words here that are probably worth highlighting or underlining in your Bible. You can see them there. Believed and righteousness. Now, typically when you hear the term righteousness or even you read it in the scriptures, what do you think of? Someone that is being right. Someone that is doing upright behavior. Someone that is, you know, doing the right thing. And that's true when you look at the scriptures. But here Abraham is described as righteous not because of anything he's done. Not because of some nice deed or trying to do the, the right thing. I mean, we, we've already seen him made quite a mess of things in the previous chapter. Selling your wife into a royal harem, I'm going to go with that's a bad one. And how about next week with Hagar? Yeah, I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with he is not righteous. But here's the key then. He put his faith in the Lord. And for that reason, God considers him, counts him, credits him as righteous. You understand? The Lord counted him as righteous simply because of his faith. That's it. Faith alone. I want you to turn to Romans for a second. This is such a critical text. I mean, if you're the Apostle Paul, go to the book of Romans for just a moment, and you're writing the Bible, <laughs> and you're trying to come up with an illustration about this critical truth about God and ourselves and how we are justified. His mind goes to this text in Genesis 15. Look what he says here in Romans Chapter 4. Romans 4, see if you can recognize the story as well as the, the key phrase that Paul uses to explain this important truth about being justified by faith. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here it comes. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, later in the chapter, 
He points, he keeps with this whole theme. He talks about it's the same with David, but let your eyes drop down to verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, right, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherence of the law for it to be heirs. Now, notice, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom we believe, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, notice, in hope, talking about Abraham here, he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations. As he had said, told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his body as good as dead. He's an old man. We know that, right? He did not weaken in faith, body as good as, as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted, there it is again, can you see it? Was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It would be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for what? Raised for our justification. See, This brings us to the good news that all of these promises which were made to Abraham are fulfilled, what is Paul saying, in Christ. You see, Abraham looked forward to Jesus. We look backward to Jesus. Abraham looked forward and he had very little information except the promise that through this heir, God would eventually fix his sin problem. It's not just about having kids. Don't you remember Genesis 3.15? Tattoo that if you're going to get a Bible verse on your arm. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent will be destroyed by the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, massive promise. Abraham's looking for this heir. It's not just a kid, but he's looking. This is all, Moses writes Genesis. It's all one book, and he's talking about this promise that was given. And, and, And so what is he saying? He's looking forward to having his sin problem dealt with. That one, maybe through his line, that actually it's going to be the seed of the woman who's going to crush the seed of the serpent. And, and so Abram looks forward. He's, he's looking forward in anticipation to have his sin problem fixed. We look backward. And God says that through this heir, my own son, Jesus, I can fix your sin problem. God gives Abram this assurance that he will, he will keep his word. And now we stand on the other side of that, seeing that God has in fact kept his word because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Which answers the most important question. How can a man or woman become right before God, become right with God? Because we are not right in and of ourselves. We have sinned and rebelled against the Lord And since that is the case, dear friend, you are not right with God because you come into this world guilty like myself. 
This is why justification by faith is absolutely critical because it tells us how somebody who is in rebellion against God may become right with him. We are justified not by being a good person or going to church or trying to be nice on campus, but only through the work and finished work of Jesus that we receive by faith and faith alone. Now, if we jump back to Genesis, the story's not done. So turn back to Genesis. In verse 7, to the end of the chapter, there's another conversation and another promise and another divine symbol. You know, it's interesting with Genesis 15, it, at first glance, it's, it's partly astonishing and, and partly confusing. Let me, let me show you what I mean here. Look at chapter 15. There's these incredible promises that we just saw that are made to Abram. But then it's suddenly here in the story, just when you think this is like the most encouraging text you've ever read in your life, it suddenly shifts into this bizarre scene where you've got these animals cut up and you've got like, you know, I don't know, it almost reminds me of Fantasia, like these walking broomsticks going through, like with, you know, it's got this really strange, like what is, what is happening here? I mean, if you've ever read this in devotion time, you're like, you're soaring with the first six verses, right? And especially if you read Romans 4. And then, you know, you kind of go back and well, let me finish up in Genesis. And then you're like kind of scratching your head going, I don't know what to make of that. It's kind of like, you know, you have a nice cup of coffee for the first time at some new cafe. And you're like, ooh, that's really good. But then you're not quite so sure about the aftertaste. Might be good, might be bad. You're not just, just not so sure. It's kind of how Genesis 15 feels a bit here. But let me show you how key this is. It's interesting, too, those of you that study literature, you might notice there is, there is a very interesting parallel between the first six verses and 7 through 21. Like, stunningly similar. They're actually united in this way. And he, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So, again, we've gone from his promise reaffirmed, restated, right? Now he goes to land. So the promise of seed, now promise of land. I'm the Lord who brought you out from the river of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord, how am I to know? You see how he's reassuring him there? Same idea. How am I to know? And then, he's, what does he do? Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. All those things are in the sacrificial system, by the way. It's quite interesting. And he brought these two, and he cut them in half. But he not cut the birds in the half. And then when the birds of prey can't, these vultures come down. Abraham drove them away. Now, what, what is, okay, what, 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 what on earth is going on here? Well, in ancient times, there was the way that you would establish what's called an, a covenant. Is that you would, sounds kind of gross and kind of dramatic for our sort of Western eyes and ears and all that, but you would cut an animal in half, and you would actually, like, let's say Robert and I, I would walk through, I say, I'm going to plant a church in Crestview, and I'm, we cut an animal in half. He says, okay, I'm, I'm holding you to that, and I said, and if I don't, may I be like this cat that's, you know, it's got to be a cat, so, you know, may, maybe I'd be like this animal that's been 
sawn in two. May I be like that. And Robert, if you don't come in on your deal, which I don't know where you would come in on that, but then may you be like this animal too. You, you get the point? And, and so we see this in the Bible where there's a covenant that's cut, it's called. And the animals walk, you know, or sorry, after they're dead, you know, the people walk through the dead animals. But here, what happens? Well, Abraham falls into a, a sleep by God. Same kind of language that when Eve is created, falls into a deep sleep. And so he's passive in this. Don't, 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 don't tune out here. This is, this is huge. He is passive in this endeavor, in a sense. Because does Abram walk through that animal? He doesn't. Instead, you've got the flaming torch. Well, what's this flaming torch stuff about? Who is this book? Who are the original readers, as it were, recipients of this book? The wandering wilderness tribe that has been redeemed out of the Exodus. And when they think of Sinai, think of Sinai, fire. When they remember Moses appears, burning bush. Well, what is this? This is symbols of God's presence. So who walks through the cut up animals? It's not Abram, it's God pledging himself. God's saying, I'll make good on this, on my own character. You can trust that this will happen, Abram. How? How can I know? Because I'm going to walk through the dead animals. I'm going to pledge my own life on the line, as it were, here. I'm putting myself, you can trust, because I'm willing to do that. It's an incredible passage. And the Lord, it says, cut a covenant. This will happen. And isn't it amazing that when we read the Bible, we see what happens. The nation of Israel, they get their land, and they muck it up. They don't keep the covenant. They eventually get conquered by the Babylonians. By the time that the Lord Jesus arrives on the scene, you've got Rome involved. It's, they've got no Davidic king. Things are not what they expected. All of that looks forward to Christ who deals with our hearts. Because how did they get themselves in that place? It's their hearts. They need to be, their hearts need to be changed, circumcised. And that comes through faith. And that's what we have. That's what Paul's talking about in the New Testament. That's because of Christ and what he has done. It's an incredible thought, dear friend, when you realize that when Jesus was at the cross and hanging on the cross, he was and is sinless. But God treated him as if he was a sinner. Do you understand? He executed Jesus as if he lived your life so he could treat you as if you lived his you have faith in Christ, when God sees you and you stand before him, a righteousness that is not your own is given to you like, like a it's cold day, like a jacket. 
like a garment. And you have now, if you have faith in Jesus, you have a garment, an outfit fitted for heaven because of the finished work of Jesus. So when you stand before God, he won't see your name, sinner. He sees his son because of Christ and his perfect obedience on your behalf. What could you, what do you think, do you really think that you could add anything to that? Do you really think that, you know, trying to be a good person or, you know, having, you know, a, a three by five card meeting at Starbucks and having a, 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 some kind of a question time, that that's going to add anything to your faith? That's zero to your faith. Your righteousness is a filthy rag and so is mine. Christ's righteousness is perfect. And it's only by faith in Christ, faith alone, do we get this righteousness. What an incredible Incredible truth. A lot more can be said, but I'm going to leave that to Pastor Robert for next week. For now, I'm going to pray and he's going to come and lead us in a time of communion. Lord, we praise you for this opportunity to look to your word. And it is so encouraging that Christ is written on every page. It's so easy to see, Lord. It's the way that Paul and Peter and all, everyone else has looked backward and read and interpreted the Old Testament for us. It's not about people groups. It's, those things are secondary. It's not about land. It's about Christ. So, Lord, we pray that as we now come to the table to reflect, Remember Christ's body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. Lord, we pray that you would be here, your presence would be here in a special way as we reflect upon these truths and, and are recipients of, of grace in this moment, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.